Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We got some eco data today. Uh, we've had a lot of economic data really over the last week, week and a half. Uh, a lot for the Federal Reserve to chew on as it thinks about its uh, net next rate decision. Spring in Ira Jersey covers all that interest rate stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's down in the Princeton campus of Bloomberg Intelligence, the core HHQ for BI. Uh, Ira, again, we had some retail sales number today. Some industrial production numbers came in, uh, I guess, a little bit weaker than expected. Anything here over the last several days changes your opinion that you know, this Federal Reserve is probably going to raise rates here at the end of the month but and then after that it's it's a I guess still a guessing game <laughs> yeah it, it is probably still a guessing game Paul afterward uh, especially since before the September meeting we effectively get two months worth of data right so it's not just a single yep. month like we ha kind of have now in between uh, the, the June and July meetings um, you know the data has been pretty mixed uh, today's data is just proof proof of that we had pretty weak industrial production numbers uh, that doesn't look good the good sector manufacturing is not doing well uh, in the United States and indeed uh, indeed globally there, there's a slowdown in manufacturing and then on, but on the other side spending was really good when you look at the control group so this is the GDP input from the retail sales numbers this morning, and that was uh, th that was solid. So, so yeah, very mixed data in terms of what's gone on in the business sector and maybe setting up for a recession versus you know actual spending data, which looks pretty good. So, Ira, in terms of what you anticipate the meetings look, the meeting minutes looking like coming out of this uh, next Fed meeting next week, do you anticipate? the majority of the conversation being about what the Fed is going to do in the fall versus a justification for what we expect to be a hike next week? Yeah, so, so I don't think the, the minutes of this meeting will be particularly interesting because there's not a summary of economic projections that are coming out. Mm. So they don't, you know, they always tweak, uh, you know, in the intermeeting period, kind of here's what happened. Um, but, but those big discussions about you know, more forward-looking information will come more from the, uh, the so September meeting when we do get a new dot plot summary of economic projections. Where do we think unemployment and GDP and everything else is going to be? So, so, so I think September will be much more telling in that regard. 
Um, you know, my, my, my feeling is, is that the, the Fed this week is going to say, okay, we're hiking again. They basically promised that they were going to, and they'll say, but we're going to reevaluate meeting by meeting, and, and they'll continue with that type of discussion. You know, you, get, you go back to this time last year, and the, the Fed was still saying, we're, we're continuing to increase interest rates, right? So they were almost promising that they were going to keep going, not necessarily at what pace, but that they were going to keep hiking rates. And, and now they're, they're significantly more data dependent than they were a year ago um, for, for each, uh, in between each individual meeting. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, so, so this is kind of like a placeholder meeting, I think, in a way, where September can be much more telling as to the future of interest rates. Is this Federal Reserve ever going to come out and say, basically, hey, we did a good job. We got inflation down. It's going <laughs> in the right direction. You know, we, we were aggressive, but it's working. I, I, well, they've already started to say that, that, you know, Jay Powell during his press conference and in some of the um, other conferences and, and, uh, and, and meetings at, that he's had in between, whether it was before Congress or over in Portugal at, at, uh, at the ECB summit, um, he's basically said, look, tr inflation is trending in the direction that we like, but, we're, we're, but the job's not done. Um, so I, I think from his standpoint and from their standpoint, they, they can... They'll, they won't say anything like that until it's very clear that, say, that the PC deflator is below 3%. Once you get there, I think they can say that, like, we're approaching our target, and, um, and, and then they'll pat themselves on the back maybe a little bit and, and basically say, you know, job's done, but we're being cautious. And what's your timeline these days, Ira, for when we can anticipate that celebration? <laughs> yeah, so, so I think before the end of the year, the, the, the Fed is going to be able to say, you know, we, we've gotten inflation back toward or, or near our, uh, our target level of 2%. Um, so because of that, we can be, uh, remain on hold. And, and you know, the, they'll always continue to use the buzzwords of we're continuing to watch, you know, economic activity and inflation and jobs and everything else. Um, the, I don't think that they're going to cut rates until... Uh, later next year, so a little bit beyond what's what's being priced. The market's still pricing for cuts in the first quarter of next year, or the first cut in the first quarter of next year. I think it, it's going to. They're not going to ultimately cut until later next year. Once they do, I think that that the economy is going to be weak enough that they'll have to cut much more aggressively, maybe than what the market's pricing. Well, to Paul's point about when they can start to celebrate, I wonder when we might have a Fed that does a little bit of a post-mortem and looks at uh, the lag in raising interest rates and maybe is open to discussing in an effort to build some credibility uh, that they maybe drop the ball a little bit too early on. Do you anticipate anything like that happening? Well, you know, I think everyone and the Federal Reserve always does some self-reflection, and certainly they can be criticized for, um, you know, not even the rate hikes. Like, like if if I were to do a postmortem on on what the Federal Reserve. Uh, did and the actions that it took. I think the, the the single biggest thing that they did was they continued quantitative easing too long. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they could have ended quantitative easing in the spring of 2021, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and you know started to hike in early 2022, similar to what they did. But but they they didn't take any hawkish actions until maybe it was a little bit too late. Now once they got going, they obviously as we know they really got going yeah. and and you know kind of played catch up. So uh, and and it's not unusual for. Some central banks to do that because they don't want to be seen as hiking and tightening monetary policy too early. Um, but, but there's other actions now that they can take other than the blunt uh, instrument of actually hiking uh, interest rates, you know, especially when they have balance sheet policy that they can play with. 
uh, Ira, when you you know talk to institutional investors, are, what's the recession talk these days? Do people think it's kind of off the table, or at the very very least, it's going to be short and shallow? Yeah, most of the people that I talk to think that we're going to have some form of soft landing. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's a recession. Like, you know, how you define a recession obviously matters a lot. It, whether whether we get a recession that the NBER, um, you know, classifies as one, I think is still very much up in the air, and a lot of investors are kind of looking past that and saying, okay, look, when we look at the hard data, when we look at the retail sales data, which is a hard data point because it's actual sales in the economy that looks pretty good. And employment is, is, hasn't yet completely rolled over, although we have slowing job growth, we don't have yet have job losses. Um, it, you know, we've, it's pretty rare to have a recession and no job losses. So, um, so I think a lot of people are, are very hopeful that we'll have uh, a soft landing. Um, you know, I think rates investors are a little more skeptical and a little more pessimistic uh, than, say, equity investors that I've spoken to. Um, but uh, there's a lot of people who are confused because we, we do have this variety of data, like I said, that, that you know, you look at the ISM surveys and they're suggesting that we're going to have a significant slowdown. But at the same time, you get retail sales numbers like we had this morning and people are like, eh, you know, maybe the survey <laughs> data is not going to be right. All right, we're going to be on uh, alert for uh, more data. We obviously have at the Fed uh, uh, next week with their uh, announcement. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us there. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. After a brutal 2022 in equities and fixed income, uh, 2023 is treating investors a lot better here. Started the first half of the year, S&P up about 15% or so. We've added a little bit more to that since here in July. The question for a lot of folks is now what do we do? Uh, so let's check in with somebody who does this stuff for a living. Kara Murphy, CIO of Kestra Investment Management. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. No phoning it in uh, today. So Kara, you know, a good first half of the year for a lot of investors particularly those that owned Apple and Amazon and Meta and things like that. What are you telling your clients here as we kind of kick off the second half? Well, thanks so much for having me here. And we've called 2023 the revenge of the growth stocks. Okay. <laughs> nice. So it's all those stocks that underperformed so much in 2022 came back with a vengeance and really yep. turned on a dime in the first half. But when you think about, you know, largest seven stocks in the S&P were up about 90% year to date. Ooh. Just mathematically speaking, that can't continue forever. So we've started to see the market broaden out a little bit. Russell 2 is coming back a little bit, seeing some mid caps do better. So that's healthy for the market. So, you know, and, and there's a fair amount of economic momentum as well. You know, we're still cautious on kind of where we are in the economic cycle, but consumers remain really strong. Balance sheets are relatively hefty. So, you know, in my mind, it's kind of a back to basics where you want to be able to have a diversified portfolio because nobody can call those big turning points and you can't be stuck in a handful of stocks that are suddenly going to turn around the wrong way. You mentioned the Russell 2K and they broke out of that key resistance level last week. I wonder to what extent you look at that versus the Dow breaking out of its key levels as well. What are you thinking in terms of the comparison of the two indices? Well, frankly, as a practitioner, the Dow, we don't pay all that much attention to yeah. because it's a fairly concentrated measure of what's happening in the market. The Russell 2 is a pretty good representation of what's happening on the smaller side of the market. S&P 6 is also a very helpful indicator because 
because you take out some of those really small cap names in the Russell 2000 mm -hmm. that are not that meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those, again, are starting to see a little bit more life. But remember, like small caps have been beaten up for years. Yeah. We really have never had that long kind of streak of small caps outperforming, at least not in recent history. So this could be a sign of some more resiliency in those smaller names. On the fixed income side, I mean, you know, it was brutal last year. There was nowhere to hide in fixed income. This year, I can just go sit in a two-year treasury and get 4.7%. That feels like, you know, just paradise. What should I do in a fixed income? Should I be taking a little bit more risk than the two-year treasury? Well, it's been so interesting to watch investor psychology. With, as you said, 2022, fixed income was left for dead. I mean, it was really an existential crisis. And we had a lot of clients who were coming to us saying, why do I own fixed income at all? Mm -hmm. This year is a very different story where all of a sudden people are very happy sitting in a two-year treasury or a money market earning attractive returns that we haven't seen in decades. So the, re the reality is somewhere in between. Fixed income mm -hmm. is still a really important asset class. You can still build a really great diversified portfolio that will do well over time. But it's hard to kind of draw people out of that very safe place after the volatility that we had last year. So eventually, as we start to see the yield curve kind of revert, get to a more normal position, I think gradually investors will be drawn out the curve and into some other asset classes. But you're right, right now they're pretty comfortable. Yeah, and in terms of that volatility, obviously the banking turmoil crisis, whatever term you want to use there comes to mind. How are you thinking about the long-term effects of that? Do you think that it was overblown a little bit or did we underprice the impact? I think there was a moment there where we were kind of looking across the financial abyss, right? Like yeah. we had three very large financial institutions that failed very quickly. The good news is that regulators already had a pretty good playbook from the financial crisis. They moved in size, in force, and it was coordinated. So it worked out okay from a systemic perspective. It didn't have to be that way. And, and I credit regulators with, with managing through that. But there are lasting implications. And the big one is tighter lending standards. And we're seeing that come through in force. Small businesses can't get loans. Um, loan officers are really tightening up. And that will be a drag on economic growth for the foreseeable future. How about outside of, of the U.S.? Are you suggesting your clients look at, I don't know, Europe, for, for example? We've got some, some the dollar pulling back off of its recent strength. How do you think about outside of the U.S.? Yeah, similar to fixed income, you know, a lot of non-U.S. equity markets had kind of been left for dead because the S&P 500 was the best performing asset class for year after year. Mm -hmm. So we've been encouraging people to remember that non-U.S. stocks are still a really important part of a portfolio. In particular, you mentioned the dollar. So the dollar has started to retreat a little bit. If we have inflation licked here and Europe is still battling it, that will also be a drag on the dollar. So that is good for non-US investments. But then also when we look at EFA valuations versus the US, US tends to trade at a higher valuation relative to EFA in general, mm -hmm. but that has gotten to like two and a half standard deviations above the norm. So it definitely looks like the valuation differential, you're being paid to take a little bit more risk outside the US. And then, if it, okay, if you're getting paid to take on risk outside of the U.S., what is the allocation looking like then for those emerging markets? So emerging markets is a little trickier because those have much larger kind of cycles. You know, there's been a lot of talk about China just not coming back online like it was expected. Yeah. Some of those um, Asian emerging markets that rely a lot on China have actually been more resilient than expected. So emerging markets, I think, is an important allocation to be able to have in a portfolio, but you want to size it appropriately. You know, if you're a very conservative investor, you don't want a huge amount of allocation there. 
All right, we're just starting to really get into the teeth of earnings here. What are you guys and your teams, what are they kind of looking for this earnings season? What are you kind of listening for on earnings calls? So certainly the banks are going to be really important. We started to see some come out today. You know, we talked about lending standards. So how cautious are companies or banks in particular being in terms of writing new credit? Also, what about the credit that's already on their balance sheet? So consumers, you know, we're starting to see delinquencies tick up a little bit. What kind of behavior are they seeing? Um, and then also in commercial real estate office in particular, right? We've, we've seen a lot of concern there um, and it hogs up a lot of balance sheet on regional banks. So that's going to be very important. Um, and I think more generally looking at consumer behavior. So are people starting to trade down a little bit? We're certainly seeing it outside the US where people are trading to, you know, more private labeled cheaper goods. Um, and so how are people reacting, particularly in anticipation of things like student loan payments coming back again? Mm, that's right. When you think about trading down specifically, I feel like in the last earnings cycle on the consumer discretionary side, at least it was kind of a mixed picture of the consumer, like Target bad, Walmart obviously good. How do you suss out uh, the information that you're getting throughout an earnings cycle to come to one conclusion about the consumer? <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge. What's the secret to your job? Because <laughs> yeah. as you point out, there wasn't a single tune yeah. right in, in the last earnings season. You heard some areas of caution, some areas like, no, we're good. So you kind of have to put it all together, you know, like studying for the CFA, you're talking about mosaic theory. So that's really what it is, taking yeah. All these little pieces and then stepping back to see what picture is forming so i think we'll know a little bit more in a couple of weeks yay. you're based in austin right i am how long have you been there oh, cool. uh only a year but right I've been so you're in texas one of those five you've been in texas i'm just wondering where is austin putting all these people that are you putting like trailers <laughs> or something i mean can austin handle all these people coming down uh, it has been a challenge it is very difficult to get a dinner reservation on a friday night <laughs> how about how about traffic because what have we seen in, the, in some of these mm. southern cities even atlanta hasn't been able to and you know several decades after it exploded in growth to deal with the traffic. Well, I always laugh when I hear Austinites complaining about the traffic. I mean, like, no offense, Austinites. I love you guys, but you know nothing about traffic. You do you know, not I, know. I spent yeah. most of my life in New York City. And yeah. Traffic in Austin is just fine. And so is there, are, now are people, are they, what's the back to office situation in Austin? What are people generally doing? So much more than what you would see here in New York City. So we're back four days a week and we have been for a year. And, and so there's certainly a fair amount of people still remote and will probably mm. remain that way but simply because you know commute times are much less than what you find in a place like new york so a lot of people are back in the office at least a few days a week. is austin still we still weird oh for sure <laughs> for sure yeah keep austin i love it yeah it's kind of such a funny tagline no austin austin is amazing it's yeah. like the best and they have a school there i think right the university they, got a, or something. they got a small one <laughs> yeah. okay yeah. all right kara murphy thanks so much for joining us kara murphy's the cio at kestra investment management she's based in austin texas but we got her live here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, so we always appreciate uh, that. Thank you very much for joining us, Kara. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work 
passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, I'm looking at the warp function here. Uh, we have the Fed, obviously, uh, next week, Wednesday, I think, 93.6% uh, percentage likelihood of raising rates what do you do after that though i mean i think inflation is whipped here in the u.s but nobody asked me my opinion uh, certainly not at the fed i wonder what the how things are going around the world annika trion joins us she's the chief economist international for van longshot kempen based in amsterdam so annika give us a sense of i think inflation's whipped here in the u.s i don't know talk to us about europe how are things how's the inflation story playing out there well, inflation is not whipped yet in Europe, and it's it's typical, you know, situation that Europe is behind the curve versus the U.S. So we hope that Europe will continue its path. But I guess the main issue is that especially services inflation, especially core inflation, it's remaining stubbornly high. And that's why Lagarde, unlike Powell, actually, has been very, very outspoken. We are not done yet. So we can definitely expect more rate hikes from the ECB. And when you look at what's going to happen here in the States, uh, the next Fed meeting is a kind of foregone conclusion of another hike. The real question is what's going to happen in the fall. What are you going to be looking at to suss out what the Fed might be doing come September? Are you going to be looking at Jay Powell's commentary next week, other Fed speak? What's your what's your input there? Yeah, well, the minutes are always fascinating because in the last set of minutes, I think there was a slip of the tongue that we saw mm -hmm. using between the language of pause and skip because initially it was pause, then suddenly the word skip came out and then, mm -hmm. oh gosh, no, you know, pause again. So I think the minutes are interesting also looking at what the consensus is, what are the other officials saying? And that was interesting last time because the majority were talking about two hikes uh, from here, whereas a couple of months ago, that absolutely wasn't the case. So that incremental change in language across the whole board is interesting. But by far the most important thing is, also in the US, what is going to happen to core inflation? And yes, you know, it looked less bad than expected in the last print, but we're still nowhere near the 2% targeted number. And, and maybe last point, if I may, the 2% targeted number, I don't think, you know, you're going to see that coming at this stage, but you could argue is 2% even a relevant target probably too early for that discussion to come up. Annika, are, are you concerned that here in the U.S. the Fed either has gone or will go too far and push this economy into a recession either late this year or into, into next year that maybe could be avoided? 
Yeah, I think I think the biggest concern is the following. Let's let's zoom out again. We've spent almost 10 years massively undershooting the inflation target. And now, you know, the last period, we're massively over shooting the inflation target. So if you took a step back and said, well, look, let's tolerate this overshoot period because, you know, apparently it ebbs and flows, fine. And then, you know, we don't need to be so aggressive on monetary policy. We don't need to keep aggressively hiking. Maybe we can avoid this hard landing. That's what the data is telling us thus far, not the leading indicators, but the actual data. And we shouldn't be too worried. However, if also part of the credibility restoration that they're busy with, if they're extremely adamant, we said 2%, we have to get to the 2%. Um, if we don't get there, we keep on hiking, then yes, that could be um, really painful for the economy because the transition mechanism takes time. Well, and it takes time, especially in a country like the U.S., where we have so much spending going on, uh, particularly from the government. When we look at Bidenomics and the infrastructure bill, I kept making the joke this weekend because I was on a road trip that I was really seeing Bidenomics in action because uh, the amount of construction that was happening on the highways was absolutely unhinged. Um, so, Annika, when you think about the spending that's happening uh, from from the U.S. government pumping that money into the economy. Uh, how does that square with the moves we're seeing from the Federal Reserve to try and fight inflation? Can the two come together? Well, this is exactly the problem we're dealing with. And I'm sure it wasn't a fun road trip having all that infrastructure work being put to play. But that's exactly the problem. So why is it that we believe that inflation is going to be higher structurally for longer? Partly it's because of what you just mentioned. You know, if you add up the Inflation Reduction Act, which ironically is actually resulting in more inflation, <laughs> if you add up the infrastructure bill, if you add up potential student forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera, that's more than a trillion dollars that's just literally being pumped into an economy where at the other side of the table, you've got the monetary policymakers saying, gosh, we're trying to squeeze out the oxygen from the markets. We want to reduce our balance sheets. We want to you know, increase interest rates. And that's just a juxtaposition. It's very messy. So that's why, you know, there's a fair chance inflation lasts for longer and the two parties on the same table should figure out, you know, which direction are we going to let this thing go in? Hey, Annika, the, uh, China. I want to talk a little bit about China. It, the reopening, I think the expectations are quite high, what that would mean maybe for uh, the global economy. And we're seeing some weaker than expected data coming out of China. And I think about the exposure, obviously, in the U.S., big trading partner, but also think about Europe. Because I think about some of these big European industrial companies and all the big equipment and stuff that they make, they sell into China. Talk to us about kind of how you know European manufacturers and European industry are thinking about China and, and the, the pace of the reopening there. Yeah, and to your point, you know, the pace of reopening, we were very excited in the beginning. And that excitement got abated because we see that things are really slowing down. And to what extent will the central bank there put more, yep. more, as said, oxygen into the markets? We don't know. But I think the, the company's issue is twofold. So on one fold, it's producing goods that are sold to China and looking at the disposable income. And is that demand going to be robust enough to keep up those exported sales? But I think the other side is maybe more interesting, which is because of geopolitics, because of rewiring of supply chains, etc. Companies, also European companies that were relying on part of their manufacturing footprint to be situated in China that have now got to find other locations, that's structurally inflationary in most cases. So, you know, your cost of goods sold are shooting up. And are you, will, are you able to pass those, you know, higher costs to your customers? Yes or no, you've already passed on quite a bit. 
are consumers willing to pay those prices, yeah. etc. That just exacerbates the issue. Yeah. Annika, final 30 seconds here. Soft landing. How likely is that in your scenarios? It's well, it all depends on, I think, 30 seconds. So the most important thing is how stubborn are central banks going to be on this 2% inflation targets? If we're willing to accept inflation being in the 3 4% for longer than expected, and they won't be too aggressive, then soft landing could very well happen. If we stick to it and have to keep pushing policy according to the rule book, it could get more yep. painful. Annika, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting uh, your global view, your global perspective. Annika is the Chief Economist International for Von Lanschot Kempen, uh, joining us via Zoom from Amsterdam, uh, giving us uh, the global view. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk big banks right smack in the middle of earnings season for the banks, the regional banks, the big money centers, uh, all reporting uh, numbers here. So let's roundtable this thing like we like to do. Allison Williams, uh, she joins us via Zoom and Herman Chan. Uh, we got him lassoed here into our Bloomberg studio here in New York. Herman, let's start with you because you were the source of all this problem uh, several months ago, you and your regional banks. Yep. A big super regional bank reported today, mm-hmm. PNC. The stock's up. Yeah. What, 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 what are you seeing from PNC? A bit of a surprise. I think it's just um, PNC is getting caught up with some of the uh, more positive uh, tone from some of the other banks that reported today. But for PNC itself, um, the the earnings missed uh, estimates and the guidance was a bit weak relative to uh, both net interest income and some uh, – some other areas. So it's a bit of a challenge for regional banks. I think this will be sort of reflective across the group where uh, deposit costs are continue to rise. Banks will continue to offer weaker guidance with respect to net interest income. Loan growth is going to be a bit of a challenge for the regionals because they don't have a lot of the areas that are growing like credit cards. So it's going to be a bit of a slog over the next few quarters. Well, it seems like wealth management is the thing that's kind of keeping a lot of these banks from uh, having less than great earnings this season. Uh, Allison, to what extent do you think that the wealth management side of these firms is going to be able to keep them from uh, experiencing more of these headwinds from things like deposits and money market funds? Certainly for uh, Morgan Stanley, it was very strong. The flows came in better than expected. Their fee base flows better, investment management flows also better. Um, And in fact, revenue for them also came in a bit better. The net interest income side um, within wealth uh, tends to feel a little bit more pressure than some of the core business. And that really is because those customers are a little bit more price sensitive. The balances are higher and the cost of deposits tends to rise faster there. But I think what we're seeing across the banks um, if anything, is a little bit of a relief rally in the sense that deposit costs are going up. We are seeing that migration, but it's not as bad as feared. Um, Bank of America did um, come in about in line, so that was not as positive as what we saw at JP Morgan and Citi. Um, but they did up their guidance for next quarter a little bit, and so I think that's a key positive and, and is helping the shares a little bit today. Hey, Herman, what have you heard so far and what do you expect to hear about i know you mentioned and allison mentioned the cost of deposits going up obviously um but how about just the deposits in general at these regional banks there's concern that they would be 
that they'd be losing deposits. Um, right. What are you hearing so far? Yeah, so deposits, actually, the, the overall balances have been pretty stable if you look at um, the reporting. But what's interesting is the remixing of those deposits. So the non-interest bearing accounts, uh, those are continuing to fall. So they're down about 6 7% across the group so far that have reported. Um, and that's just indicative of the, the repricing pressures as uh, folks that have uh, checking accounts, they're moving their money to CDs, and so the banks have to pay up for those. So that, that's another reason why we're, we're seeing headwinds across the group. But it doesn't necessarily feel to consumers like they're getting a lot of bang for their buck when it comes to these deposits. Do, right. we, do you think that we're going to need to see a Bank of America offering better returns for people to keep their money in their bank accounts? Well, the banks are not going to give you the money uh, the, the higher interest rate. You have to take your money out of your deposit yeah. accounts to open up a CD. So it takes a bit of you know, some wherewithal from your a consumer to do that. And yeah. the banks are just banking on folks just keeping their money <laughs> in their checking accounts. Yeah. So that's, that's really the dynamics that's playing out right now. Yeah. Hey, Allison, um, what are we going to see from uh, Goldman Sachs just tomorrow? What will you be looking for? What do you think the market's looking for? So we are going to see um, some charges at Goldman Sachs. We saw some severance costs at Morgan Stanley today. We're also going to see that at Goldman. And we're also going to see the higher impairment. So that's definitely going to lead to some um, pressure on the reported numbers. On a core basis, um, trading fees are down. And despite things coming in a little bit better than expected, and there's you know talk of a constructive view, um, those that revenue is going to be lower for Goldman Sachs. They do they are the revenue leader uh, in M&A, and that's a big headwind for the quarter. Uh, so for the bank, we're really going to be looking to see how they're how they stacked up competitively on those revenue trends, and then costs beyond some of the items I talked about. What is the core trend there? Because they really are working to improve their efficiency. Allison, is 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 there? Am I imagining this, or is there any pressure from shareholders or any other external stakeholders on David Solomon right now, given maybe what happened with the Consumer Bank, for example? I mean, I think there's a lot of talk and, and headlines around the Consumer Bank, but keep in mind that was not um, started under his That's purview, right. so it was something sort of that he inherited. And it was, you know, they, they took a shot. It was something different for Goldman Sachs. I would say that investors never really had um, a lot of uh, faith in that strategy. It's certainly not why people bought the stock. It was more something that they tried out and, and could help over time. They are continuing with the consumer deposit side of the business. So there is, you know, something there, but, but certainly the lending strategy is something that um, they've decided is, is just not something they're going to move forward with. They don't really have the competitive advantage there. And when it comes to the consumer, Herman, I want to bring you back in here because we talked a lot about the impact of credit tightening on consumers, small mm -hmm. businesses. Uh, so far with the PNC earnings, are we getting any indication as to how tight the credit is getting for those uh, smaller consumers, small businesses across the country? Yeah, so we're seeing actually um, consumer growth still fairly strong across the board, and where where the demand ha has has fallen a bit is on the business side, the commercial side, mm -hmm. um, and Allison's banks have seen some strength in credit card lending, so that's something that that is helping some of the money center banks relative to the regionals, but uh, the the. Tighter underwriting is probably going to happen more on the commercial side of things, which really is a detriment to the regionals because they are more focused on commercial lending. 
Allison, are we seeing any share shifts in, you know, the, I think about the classic fixed income trading businesses. Is it, are we seeing any big shifts there? Is it still kind of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, the, the big players? I mean, it still is the big players, but what we have seen, I mean, over the last decade or so is uh, market share gains from um, the largest U.S. competitors. In this particular quarter, um, Bank of America is really the standout, showing more resilient 10% um, growth. However, I would also point out that you know Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, um, who still do well in the commodities business, are up some really against a really tough comparison. Um, Morgan Stanley, you know, coming in even even worse than 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 had been expected. But if you looked, I think across the different verticals, um, the big getting bigger, and Bank of America really, I think, seeing the fruits of some of their investments in terms of the rates trading business and equities mm. trading business. Allison, really quickly here, though, with Bank of America, the bond losses hitting 106 billion dollars. Is that going to weigh on the bank moving forward, heading into uh, the next quarter? I mean, I think that the bank has sort of, uh, you know, given keeps giving a lot more granular information about its bond portfolio. Um, certainly, that's just going to take time to manage that over time. And I think that the 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 fact, as as we learned with these banks, it's it's not just about the loss that you carry, but it's sort of about the de strength of the deposits and the asset liability management that supports them. And what we are seeing at Bank of America deposits down with the industry, but certainly that, that broad-based strength and um, especially on the new account side. All right, guys, uh, what you just heard is some smart, smart analysis from some of our, our leading voices at Bloomberg Intelligence covering the banks. Allison Williams, she covers the big global banks, the investment banks. Uh, Herman Chan covers uh, the regional banks, which have really come into focus really over the last several months. And we love getting those two uh, smart people together, help us kind of walk through what's happening out there with the, uh, the banking system. So uh, Allison Williams and Herman Chan, thank you so much for joining us here. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. 
You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I love biotech stocks because they are, it seems like it's a binary situation. You hit it, oh, yeah. and a boom or you don't, and then it goes to zero. I mean, it, I do not have the stomach uh, to trade these things, but a lot of folks do, and they do it successfully. But uh, one of the uh, biotech uh, companies, biopharma companies, is Recursion Pharmaceuticals. And we have the uh, CEO, Chris Gibson, he joins us. He's a CEO and co-founder of Recursion Pharmaceuticals. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, first of all, tell us what you guys do. What's your focus at Recursion? Well, thanks, Paul. Hi, Madison. Yeah, our focus is to eliminate that bimodal worry that you right. just talked about, Paul. Uh, so we're bringing together the worlds of automation and computation to try and turn this artisanal bespoke process of discovering medicines that takes 10 to 15 years and costs billions of dollars for each new approved drug and turn it into something that looks more like an assembly line that's much more predictable, that has much lower failure rates. And so we're using the latest in ML and AI that we build here with our team, uh, using a lot of robots to do our experiments and uh, exploring and mapping biology to try and discover new medicines at scale and one day bring down the price as well. Okay, so you know what I have to ask you about is the investment from NVIDIA. I, I, I got to hit it at the top here, $50 million private investment. And I had covered recursion slightly previously, but I, I hadn't looked into your company as much, to be honest, until uh, the news of that deal. To what extent do you see that uh, infusion of investment as a game changer for what you're going to be able to do moving forward with recursion? Well, look, I think what's important for us about the investment and partnership with NVIDIA is that we've been working together with them for the past three or four years. We run one of the fastest supercomputers in the world. I think it's number 130 or something in the fastest computers in the world right now, and it's built on the NVIDIA infrastructure. And what this thing, what I think this does is more signals to the rest of the world that NVIDIA is excited about the biopharma market and that they see us as, as a leader and someone to partner with. And, and so we're very excited to not only continue discovering new medicines internally here at Recursion, to continue our partnerships with Bayer and Roche Genentech in the fields of fibrosis and neuroscience, but now with NVIDIA to actually start to take some of the neural networks that we're building here at Recursion that we apply to our own data and to actually serve those on their marketplace, BioNemo, where other pharma companies who aren't yet our close partners can actually start to access those neural nets to advance their own research. And so we're very mm -hmm. excited about that collaboration. More broadly, I wonder if you think that AI and the mania around AI is enough to help the biopharma industry uh, kind of recover from some of the Fed rate hiking uh, impacts and headwinds that have impacted your industry over the past couple of years. Well, look, it's always hard in biopharma because our revenues are, are so deferred. And as Paul mentioned at the beginning, it really in the past has been pretty bimodal, especially for startups. Uh, but I think in this particular case, ML and AI is starting to give people an appreciation for how that could change. And, you know, three or four years ago, even we in the biopharma industry hadn't fully accepted the potential of ML and AI. But Recursion was founded almost 10 years ago specifically to bring these tools to bear. And like many founding stories, you know, this is this is a company I founded out of graduate school. Uh, we were really going against the current in the early days. I would say now in every executive team in biopharma of the largest companies in the boardroom, 
all of them are thinking about the ways that ML and AI is going to change this industry. And they're looking to companies like us who've been doing this for years to give them clues as to which direction things are going. Will it pull us out of the broader macro cycle? I have no idea. Uh, I learned a lot from our board chair, Martin Chavez, who said uh, not to make predictions about the future of the market. So <laughs> I won't do that. All right. Recursion Pharmaceuticals is a publicly traded company. RXRX is a very cool ticker symbol. Uh, it's got a market cap of $2.6 billion. Stock's up 76% year to date in large part on that investment by NVIDIA. Anything NVIDIA touches seems to turn to gold here. So just to understand your company, um, Chris, does Recursion develop any drugs treatments on its own or do you license your technology to other biotech companies all of the above paul so we've got five drugs in clinical trials right now three of those are in phase two or phase two three trials in fact we fully enrolled our first phase two trial just a few weeks ago uh we focus internally on rare genetic diseases and precision oncology where a company of our size and scale could, could run five, six, maybe one day, 10, 20 clinical programs. And then we partner with large companies like Bayer and Roche Genentech to go after huge intractable areas of biology like neuroscience, where you really need uh, the capital, the resources, and the expertise of a large pharma company to go after you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, some of these big neuro diseases. And then I think what's, what's exciting people recently about the NVIDIA news is there's now this third value driver. Beyond our own pipeline, beyond our own partnerships to discover medicines, we're now starting to leverage some of the tools we built for ML and AI to look at a different part of the demand curve and start to partner with the rest of the biopharma industry to leverage our tools on some of their own data. And there will be more coming about this in, in the coming quarters, but certainly that's the plan with our friends at NVIDIA. Talk to me about something that my mom would want to know that AI could help with when it comes to drug discovery. So today, scientists are trying to understand this incredibly complex space of biology and chemistry using really, really old tools. And what we're doing at Recursion is the equivalent of building Google Maps, but for biology. So instead of focusing on one disease at a time, we're looking at every gene in the genome and millions of molecules in many different human cell types using robots and sophisticated computational tools to literally give a map on a web interface for biologists and chemists to use. And it will look very much like Google Maps, but instead of looking at a street uh, you know, in your neighborhood or, or looking at a, a street view of a restaurant that you want to go to, this map will give the equivalent of that to biologists and chemists to understand things about biology and chemistry that until now we haven't been able to see, to understand the complexity of all around us. And we think by providing that map, people will be able to blotter, uh, better plot the course from disease to healthy, not just for one disease at a time, but for many. And that's what we'll be working on for the last 10 years here, Madison. All right, Chris, fascinating stuff. And I guess, I mean, when you get your undergraduate degree in bioengineering and biomedical engineering from Rice University, and if that's not enough, then you go get a PhD in bioengineering from the University of Utah, you better do something really important. And I think that's what these folks are doing here. Chris Gibson, CEO and co-founder of Recursion to Pharmaceuticals. Uh, the ticker is a great ticker for a drug maker, RXRX, uh, and doing some interesting work there, really interesting work in the biopharma space. We appreciate getting a few minutes of Chris's time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.